Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Dennis Rodman remains one of the most compelling individuals ever to play hoop. Wait a second. Make that one of the most compelling individuals on planet Earth. Today's guest directs the newest ESPN 30 for 30 that drops tomorrow, and the topic is, you guessed it, Dennis Rodman. He's Todd Capistashi, and his personal story is almost as great as the worms. We'll examine both. Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Darlene, you're so right. Todd Capistashi has a boatload of Emmy Awards. He's won four in 2015 alone. Worked on NBA studio shows at ESPN with my friend Bruce Bernstein before heading to Fox Sports, where he really became a superstar. Now he returns to ESPN as the director of the new 30 for 30 on Dennis Rodman, which drops on Tuesday, September 10th. Hello, Todd. How you doing, Mike? Good, good, good. Uh, I Thankfully, people that you know sent me and Bruce an early version of this. We got to hear your voiceovers instead of Jamie Foxx's, which were just as good. I haven't even heard Jamie's. I think you should be the guy. That's just me. <laughs> But but I um, before I get into the whole uh, rigmarole and how this came about, please tell me the name of it and and whether or not this is your proudest work. It is called yeah, the documentary is called Rodman for better or worse, and which is that's sort of a play on what well, has a few meanings, obviously, but um, yeah. it's in reference to his you know 1997 before his big autobiography, Bad as I Want to Be, that ended up shooting to number one on the best you know, the New York Times bestseller list, he, to promote it, as everyone remembers, and maybe one of his most sort of famous pop culture moments, he um, dressed up in a wedding dress. He basically teased it saying he was going to get married at a book signing, and then he showed up in a wedding dress, and um, there were thousands and thousands of people there in New York City at this Fifth Avenue Barnes & Noble. Um, So as one of his sort of most iconic moments, um, we kind of stole kind of the wedding theme for better or worse, because that also, you know, in a lot of ways, Dennis, you kind of got to take him as he is. And he's had a lot of good and a lot of bad and everything in between. So we thought it was a uh, appropriate sort of subtitle. This is one of those documentaries that people have talked about for a while. When's it going to happen? Um, uh, is it, What's it going to be about? Are they going to go that deep? And I thought, even though I can't stand a lot of uh, PR releases, I, because they're they're so saccharine and sappy. You really, I thought, summed it up in your quotes. Dennis is one of the more singular athletes in the history of sports and attempting to uncover the underlying reasons and motivations behind his evolution from a shy, introverted kid in Dallas to the outrageous character we know and remember is at the heart of our film. That comes through the whole time. You're almost, 
while, while Dennis is trying to discover himself, I feel like you're trying to discover him a little bit as well. Did you feel like that? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think hopefully the audience is sort of doing the same exercise. Um, you know, I think making the film, so many people came up to me when, you know, I told them that I was doing a Dennis Rodman project. And obviously the first thing that they say is, oh, are you going to North Korea? Which you know, they said it so many times, it almost got like annoying. It's like, no, you know, we'll cover it in the film. I'm not going to go. It's, you know, funny, you know, line. But I, I think what I realized, though, is that so many people because of North Korea sort of knew about Dennis Rodman, people who weren't basketball fans, people who had never seen the Bulls in the 90s or were Pistons fans, you know, in the 80s. And what I realized is everyone globally now, people had this view of Dennis Rodman. And whatever you think about that situation, obviously, you have a certain view on it and his role in it. Um, and what I wanted this film to sort of be is an explanation almost for this person who the person who would go befriend a tyrant and who thought he was doing something good and maybe saved us and maybe put us in danger who knows again based on how you feel about that situation but i think people had this notion of dennis just based on that and i think hopefully the doc is sort of this exploration of you know you don't just wake up one day and do what dennis did in north korea there's a path that sort of leads you to become a certain person and an evolution that leads you to become a certain person and I wanted to sort of explain that so that, you know, people like my mom who weren't basketball fans <laughs> or anyone who, you know, is in politics and is interested in that, who didn't know anything about Dennis would sort of understand, you know, a little more um, about what he, who he is and sort of, again, why something like the North Korea situation would happen. And so hopefully, you know, at the end of the doc, you sort of get how Dennis Rodman, I guess, becomes Dennis Rodman. We're very pleased to have uh, Todd Capstashi on the Mike Wise Show and Pure Hoops Media this week. Um, and I think a lot of the reason we got him is because he used to work with a friend of mine. But I, I, I have to ask you, you know, people that know you uh, know that your wife is a little more famous than you, Tara Lipinski. <laughs> a lot more famous, yeah. <laughs> gold medal winning skater, uh, gold medal winning figure skater. And this generation, of course, the millennials probably know her as um, as half of Johnny Weir's, um, uh, the, the announcing team that cracks everybody up during the Olympics and every other time they talk about fashion, which is, I, I think it's one of the great, <laughs> I think it's one of the great second, second acts of any athlete. Uh, and what is she, I mean, she was raised a certain way, uh, whether it be media training to talk to the media, whether it be it, how she grew up in the spotlight in so many ways. What does she think of Dennis? Um, you know what? She she finds him. So so my wife, Tara, is just like in, so interested in how people tick. And I don't know if that's because, you know, she had so much success as an athlete when she was, I mean, she won a gold medal when she was 15 years old and was a world champion at 14 and sort of in the spotlight even when she was, you know, a preteen. So I think she's always fascinated about, you know, what makes people tick and the psychology of sports. And, and, and certainly there's a lot of that to sort of uncover with Dennis. So you know, and, it, 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 and ironically, she won a gold medal in 1998, and Dennis was sort of probably the most famous he would ever be in 1998 after that um, third championship in Chicago. So they have that sort of interesting connection there. But uh, that's but right, because yeah, I mean, she, she wins the gold medal in Nagano that year, and and he goes on to win his third title with the Bulls. That's right. Exactly, exactly. So 98 was a big, a big year for my family, and obviously a big year <laughs> for Dennis. But yeah, I mean, I think she. She was fascinated by Dennis and fascinated by the, the process of sort of getting to know him and, 
and telling his story. So, and, and she, she's seen the doc and, and thankfully she likes it and has given it her seal of approval. So um, I'm happy about that. Um, I know many of the people at, at ASPN films that have probably worked with you and how this came together. I don't know if Libby, Libby Geist or Connor or any of those people were involved, but was there, when, when this all came together, was there a, was there a consensus over Dennis would be paid for this? Uh, it would have to be no holds barred. What, what were the editorial restrictions? How, how did that all work out? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there was a lot of that. I think it was, I think it was more ESPN didn't necessarily want to do a straightforward um, kind of bio doc on Dennis. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've seen the doc and I'm not, it, it, it is that in some ways, but I think ESPN was looking for the right take. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff I had done in the past is kind of tongue in cheek and a little bit sarcastic. And I sort of like to not kind of do the straightforward documentary and infuse some sort of weird, different creative aspect to it. And I think that's what sort of the Dennis Rodman story required. And I think, you know, eventually down the line, as we started talking to them about doing something with Dennis, I think they were just concerned about like, well, let's do something different. Let's have a take that's not just sort of his life story. Um, and eventually we landed on that and kind of that's what we went with. So it was a, it was a pretty short process, but it was them being comfortable with not just doing kind of, you know, an A to B to C to D yeah. documentary on Dennis. They wanted it to be different and fun and, and, um, and sort of get at something that maybe hadn't been gotten at before with Dennis. And hopefully we, we did that. Well, w- without sounding like an ombudsman that's watched every sports documentary <laughs> in the history of time, I, I'll say this. I was a little... I, not bothered, but I, at first I was like, okay, what this, this scene and people will see it. No, they'll, they'll know this when they hear the podcast, the this, this scene where you turn it into a cowboy musical for a minute. Um, <laughs> I, I think to myself, what, like, what is it? And, and by the end of the film, all these little reenactments and, and some of that um, just, it was compelling. It was compelling because not only were you carrying, uh, not only were you um, doing a documentary on a bizarre character, but a guy who had so many threads to his life. And I don't know, I, you know, just from afar, I was blown away by some of the creativity and I shouldn't have been because you have, as you said, a reputation for this, but it really, it felt like a show. It just didn't feel like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and uh, Leah Schreiber just saying what his life was like on HBO, which is not a bad thing, but Rodman almost deserved a different treatment. And you gave him that. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure you're I'm sure everybody you got along with. Uh, Did did Dennis was he compensated for the time he spent with you? No, he wasn't, actually. And, you know, he had um, he has an archive of a lot of sort of footage and um, photos and all that stuff. And I'm not sure if we ended up paying him for that, but we didn't, we didn't pay him for his time. And, you know, the fact that he, he gave us a lot of time, you know, he gave us, and we told his whole life story. So there were hours and hours of interviews over several days. So he was, you know, I think what, what helps is that, you know, the, the 30 for 30 sort of name has become so pervasive and kind of sports culture and sports media. Mm-hmm. And we all know what they are. And there's been a hundred of them. And I think, you know, I, I, for as famous as Dennis is, I think he was truly sort of excited and, you know, flattered is probably not the right word, but he was excited to have a 30 for 30 on, on himself. You know, they haven't done, they haven't done a Scotty Pippen 30 for 30. I mean, you can name all the sort of individual yeah. athletes that are amazing that haven't had their own 30 for 30. Um, so I think, you know, Dennis and his whole team were sort of pumped at, 
that ESPN wanted to do one and that his story warranted it. And, you know, I, I do think he bought into wanting to make it great. And what was sort of sweet about it, and, you know, we can talk about the various kind of personalities of Dennis Rodman, but there is this sort of, you know, sweet side of Dennis where he wanted to make this good. And he, he said that to me a few times. Oh, just like, tell me, you know, what, you know, give me direction and tell me kind of the things you want me to really dive into. And cause I think he, you know, he was concerned about it being great. And, uh, and that's like a nice thing as a, as a filmmaker is when the subject really wants it to be good and really wants to kind of get to the truth of everything. This is the ultimate Dennis Rodman story here. You, you, to me in a metaphor, he's the all time people pleaser. He's the guy, he's the guy that just wants validation. And it sounds like in a weird way, he wanted validation from this. I mean, there are a lot of people who wouldn't of his stature that wouldn't do this without money there right. without some kind of financial compensation, but he, he, he wanted to be not, if not famous, at least known again. And this was going to bring his story home as well as anybody. I'm, and he probably felt that. Where did you film the, where did, where did you uh, film him in the theater? Because it's this, this old school theater. It has this, and you got this different light cast on him. And it just captures his life and his story so well. Yeah, it was actually, it's an awesome, really historic, and I wish I could give more of a kind of historical bio on it. It's some of it's sort of escaping me now, but it's in, he lives now sort of, he still lives in Southern California. And this was a, a theater very close by to where he lives in um, downtown Long Beach. Mm. Um, and yeah, just like a very cool old, I, again, I wish I could give you more kind of stats on when it was built and what, kind of events had been there but yeah very cool theater that we kind of stumbled across that was very close by to where he was and was convenient and had an amazing look and obviously we sort of had set out to do you know there's obviously some theatrics to kind of Dennis Rodman his life and his story and and the persona of Dennis Rodman so we thought you know an empty theater where we kind of turned him around now it's not he's not facing the crowd that those days are over and he's turned around towards the camera with kind of seats behind him was going to be kind of an important way to see Dennis. And that's why we kind of chose that setting. Uh, my guest is Todd Kapstashi. He did the documentary Rodman for better or worse. It's coming out Tuesday on ESPN. The, and I only, and this is a very minor complaint. Don't take it personal. Um, I thought, and I, uh, maybe it's because it was ESPN. When I, the one media figure I always associated with him because he'd done so many interviews with him was Craig Sager. And there was, there was no Craig Sager in the film. Was that, was that purposefully you didn't want to go there? That was another rabbit hole that you didn't want to go down and you thought it would take away from the story or was it just like you had so much, you know, Craig Sager didn't really warrant. Well, you know, what's interesting is that you go through hours and 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 hours, times and thousands of footage and, and interviews. And there was obviously so much coverage of Dennis, which is great, you know, again, as someone trying to compile his life, the fact that there is all this stuff. And oh, oh, some of the Sager stuff was great. Some of it was in the dock at some point. And as you kind of whittle it down and get to the nuts and bolts of his story, you slow, I mean, I mean, there's just so many stories that had to get cut out that were amazing. And there's so much Phil Jackson stuff. And we tried to use as much Michael Jordan because we were lucky enough to get him to do an interview and try to use as much of him. And this stuff gets weeded out, uh, uh, you know, as you go through the edit process. And Craig was in some stuff for a while. But, you know, a lot of the stuff with, with that Craig did with Dennis was not sit down stuff. It was more like live to tape after a game. And it wasn't, you know, as good as some of the other things that we had. So. I just remember the time when he's in, excuse me, I cut you off. Go ahead. 
No, that's okay. Um, no, I re- I remember him in a fluorescent light when when he's trying to find Rodman in in Santa Monica or somewhere in L.A. outside his house, and it was just this uh, it was this macabre thing. Like, what? Wow, Sager's Sager's trying to find Rodman. Is he okay? And uh, uh, but but I always you know like I always said Michael Jordan, Ahmad Rashad. Muhammad Ali Cosell. And I remember I telling Craig Sager once uh, before he passed, I said, you know what? People are going to remember you. You were Rodman's guy. <laughs> and he <laughs> laughed about it. And But yeah, I look, Dennis Rodman is, is just so, uh, he, there was so much of him at so many t- uh, times. I thought, even though you said you didn't want to go to A to B, I thought you did a great job of doing the chronological thing once you got through some of it, because you always went back to the outcast. You always went back to his mother, which was tremendous. Um, I was really, I almost got emotional myself. Isaiah Thomas talking about this unconditional love that the Pistons gave him and just this, this universal acceptance. Yep. Nothing Dennis could do would shock them or phase them. And they just took him as he was. And and it was almost like you could almost talk about anybody's first job or first place that they fell in love with. I mean, when the New York Times hired me, it was like I was validated professionally. Yeah. And, I'll, and, I'll, and someone said to me, he goes, you'll never feel that way um, about a place again that you work at. And I have it. And I think right. that Dennis, that was Dennis Rodman's Pistons. That was Dennis Rod The Pistons and Dennis Rodman. Dennis, as you perfectly uh, illustrated in the documentary, that's where he, that when he was traded, he learned about the business and it was almost, it was so much less about the money than it was a heartache of the people that left, of the, of the fact that he was dispensable as a player and a person. And he took it so much deeper and more personal than a lot of players would have because of his own background. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's at the heart of the doc, I think. And that, you know, what's funny is you talk about the A to B to C and the chronology of the doc. We actually tried really hard to start with Detroit because we thought that sort of the suicide attempt and, you know, we could discuss whether, you know, how earnest of a suicide attempt that was um, and sort of what Dennis said about it. But that was this pivotal moment, right? Because it's Dennis in childhood, you know, is ostracized, he's nerdy, he's, you know, is uncomfortable with his looks, his sisters who are younger overshadow him. He has nothing going for him. He's living at home when he's 20. His mom kicks him out. He's homeless, doesn't have a good experience there, goes to rural Oklahoma find some success, but still is this sort of other in quotes because, you know, he's, he's a tall black man in rural Oklahoma where there's still, you know, in the mid eighties, a lot of racism going on and the family he leaves, lives with even, you know, so shows some signs of that and then goes to Detroit. And I think for the first time, you know, like you said, it's like you at the New York times, it was, it felt like home and it didn't feel like you were working and all the people there weren't coworkers. They were family. And I think yeah. First time felt comfortable there, felt like he was a success. He loved the sort of insular attitude of of the bad boys, probably more than anyone. Loved the sort of safety blanket of that, and he loved those guys. He absolutely loved them and loved Chuck Daly. And and then when that goes away, you know, we see this sort of evolution and big change um, in Dennis. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's like I was I was joke with like the EP and the editor as we're editing. It's like you go through all these clips, and it's like the Dennis Rodman in Detroit, for me, is by far the most likable, the most sweet, the most interesting basketball player because he, you know, kind of turned the basketball world upside down in its head in a certain way because he was scoring four points but was the most popular guy in Detroit Mm -hmm. by the end. Um, Mm -hmm. 
so yeah, it's just the Detroit dentist was my favorite dentist, and um, and which is crazy because of you know what he turned into in in terms of the the persona that he kind of created when he left Detroit. Todd Capistache's documentary is uh, Rodman for better or worse. I'd like to, uh, ESPN and Todd have been nice enough to let us use some of the material. And here's a clip from Isaiah Thomas in the documentary right now. I know who else you love in this building, the NBA's Defensive Player of the Year, the worm, Dennis Rodman. We provided an environment in a community where he can walk into the locker room and be whatever he wanted to be on that day, and there was no judgment. That is just love. When they said we were a family, it felt like it. The togetherness that that Pistons team had was a very important thing to Dennis. It provided the stability that he needed. It was a structure, it was friendship, it was all these things that he had sought, maybe without knowing it, throughout his whole life. That was the happiest and the most pure he ever was. (laughs) This is gonna sound really, really bad. 86 to 91, I think if we could have had sex with each other, I think we probably would have did that. <laughs> That's how close we were. <laughs> now, uh, what, I, what I loved about this part about the uh, documentary is, one, I, I, I don't think Rick Mahorn would agree to some of that and other players as well. <laughs> um, but, but nonetheless, it was Dennis. Dennis would say anything. Uh, you had every F-bomb and N-bomb in here you could imagine. And I guess that's if you took that out, it would defeat the purpose of really capturing the spirit of the documentary. Will that all be in on Tuesday night? They're going to, you know, obviously ESPN has some sort of codes and standards for that stuff. So I think they're the stuff that has impact, you know, some of the racial language, I think that's important to hear, I think will be in. Um, And I think some of the stuff at the end, you know, I don't want to spoil the end for people. And we, we sort of, you know, at the end, go back to Dennis for one final thought on sort of where he is and how he looks back on his life. And it's a pretty, you know, to me, a poignant moment. And so I've ended on it. And I think there's some language in there that we'll, we'll hopefully keep. But, you know, the great thing about ESPN now is in the 30 for 30 series is there are a lot of them. I think the whole, actually the whole catalog, over 100 of them are on ESPN Plus. And I think that they're unedited. So this, on Tuesday night, I think there'll be some editing of language, but on online, you know, thereafter, we'll hopefully there'll be a kind of explicit version. So, yeah. And that part about Isaiah, when he really talks about what he was like, and, and there's another part in the, I mean, he turns away and he's crying because yeah. he realizes that it's almost painful 20 years later to see what Rodman became. And on one level, I, you know, I, I almost got emotional myself, but on another level, I was kind of, this is what Dennis wanted. Like, how, how can I feel sorry for him? Yeah. Well, it, it, but is it, you know, I mean, I think, mm. I think Isaiah's, Isaiah's point there is, you know, and looking back and seeing where Dennis went in San Antonio and Chicago and sort of his post NBA career, I think I, Isaiah probably looks at that and says, you know what, if we could have 
put that in a bottle, what we had in, you know, 1990, 1991, and that was Dennis's whole career, you know, what would have, what would Dennis's life have sort of been? And, you know, we don't have an answer to that, obviously, but I don't know that he goes to, you know, San Antonio and dyes his hair and and gets tattoos. And and none of that is bad, obviously. I mean, it was great entertainment. It's Dennis as that it's him becoming who he always was meant to be. And that was great. Um, But, you know, obviously the fame and the notoriety and the stress and all all the things that came along with that obviously caused some problems for Dennis down the line with, you know, alcoholism and and some other things. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I don't know that that transformation happens. I don't know that Dennis is sitting with a shotgun in the, in his truck in the parking lot of Auburn Hills, if he didn't lose all that, if he didn't, you know, have an ex-wife and feel like he was losing his daughter, if his, who he saw as a father and Chuck Daly hadn't left, if, you know, all these players were sort of fragmenting and going to different teams, that thing that he really, really, really did see as a family kind of left. If that hadn't happened, you know, I don't know what, what the sort of trajectory of Dennis's life would have been. And I think that's what Isaiah is sort of reflecting back upon. I think he was playing and then retired and watching Dennis from afar and feeling like, God, these, these guys don't really understand Dennis and that's why he's acting out. And that's mm-hmm. why he's so volatile on the court. And that's why his, some of his behavior is sort of baffling. And I think that's, you know, why Isaiah was sort of getting so emotional there because he knew Dennis and knew what Dennis needed and didn't think he was getting that in those other places. Todd Kapstashi has won seven Emmys as a director and a producer. He's known for uh, his documentaries, Confessions of a Cubs Fan, Making Tar Wars. I, I still love George Brett running out of the dugout, going crazy, <laughs> the Pine Tar game. Um, and plus a lot of uh, Fox sports features and his work as an ESPN producer. I, I guess you were, shoot, I was in the, I was 30 something in the 90s and I was covering this as, as it went live as the NBA columnist for the New York times, you were, how old are you? <laughs> I'm 36 years old. So I'm 36. Was... So you were, so you were like six, you were like 13 to 16. I hate you, Todd. You got a huge <laughs> documentary. How did you, how did you become so worldly at that age? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I guess when Dennis was, that's what's crazy to think is when Dennis was, in the, my favorite sort of iteration and rendition of Dennis Rodman was in like 89 and I was, I was six. So I didn't, I don't really remember Dennis you yeah. know, as a assistant. I remember him obviously as a, as a bull, even as a, a spur. I don't really, you know, I was an NBA fan obviously when I was younger, but you know, I was only yeah. seven, eight, nine years old when he was on the Spurs. So, um, so yeah. This is a, this is less, but th- th- what I love about it is this is less about a basketball player and a guy who went to the Hall of Fame and maybe the greatest rebounder of all time. It's it's about a guy who used basketball as a tool to get what he wanted in life, and some of those things were great, and some of those things weren't so great. Um, when he's in that parking lot, the one pl- the one person you interviewed in the documentary that said, "Yeah, I think he was going to blow his brains out," was John Sally. Everybody else thought of it as like almost a cry for help more knowing what you do now. What, what's your feeling? I mean, it's, it's so, so hard. And and John Sally, you know, aside from probably Jack Haley, who is, you know, everyone remembers Jack Haley as Dennis's uh, sort of sidekick in uh, San Antonio and in uh, Chicago is probably best friend in the NBA. Unfortunately, he passed away of a heart attack, I guess, um, some years back. So we couldn't interview him, but, other than Jack, I mean, John Sally was his best friend and has, you know, 
was with him in a year in Chicago and all those years or most of those years before he was traded in, in Detroit. So I kind of, I think what John was saying was sort of like, it was, Dennis was so confused and so lost that I wouldn't doubt if he had suicidal thoughts as he was, you know, sitting in his truck because he was, you know, he was lost. He, he even, yeah. you know, Dennis says in the doc, he just, it, quote, I didn't know what to do. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It, it, it's like, I, even it's hard for asking Dennis about these questions. It's even hard for me to still speculate. Cause I think Dennis, what he does now is he, he sort of goes back to this narrative that is either the truth or a creation, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty easy metaphor to go to now looking back saying, I was so upset. Uh, I was trying to, you know, he says in the doc, I was, I wasn't trying to kill myself. I was trying to kill that other person. And, you know, again, that's kind of a clean narrative to say now, and it's how bad as I want to be sort of starts. And I'm not discounting that, but I think, look, I think Dennis was very troubled at the end of his Detroit years and didn't know what to do and was sitting in his parking lot and sitting in the parking lot contemplating these things. And um, he says he then fell asleep. So, um, you know, we should all be thankful that he fell asleep and, and, and kind yeah. of gave us of his career and whether or not, again, that it was an earnest suicide attempt or not, or a cry for help. I, you know, I don't yeah. even know if Dennis knows at this point, I think he would, he felt like he was lost. I'm going to probably sound like too much of a Todd Kapastashi fan at this point, because one of the things in the, in the document, and another thing in the documentary that I, I really found riveting was just the detail and the facts that I, I forgot in many ways, but things like things that I don't think people know, like why would a guy, you know, end up, obviously his relationship with the gay community was, he found a group of, um, you know, the table, well, I always say the table nine people at the wedding singer movie. And, and he found this, these outcasts and he really bonded with them. But the fact that he was raised by his sisters and his mom and, and they dressed him up as a girl and they put yeah. lipstick on him and they dress. I thought like, that makes perfect sense. Who wouldn't want to dress if they felt good and pretty and, you know, and, and they didn't feel ugly. Who, even for, even if he wasn't doing it for attention. I mean, not that he was a cross, not that cross-dressing was his thing, but this was sort of, this mirrored some of his childhood. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, one of the most interesting parts just to me of his story and, you know, it, I feel like this doc could have been triple the amount of time and we could have had, there's, there's just a lot of interesting stuff with Dennis. And I think one of the things is that his sort of relationship to the gay community then, because, you know, look, it, 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 it interestingly to me parallels the North Korea stuff in a way, because Dennis had good intentions, but wasn't ever able to articulate them quite right. Mm. So, you know, Dennis was never going to be an advocate for the gay community in the nineties because, you know, I, I just don't think he was able to sort of, you know, say the right thing and really sort of express what he was feeling. But, you know, what the guy put an AIDS ribbon in his hair when, you know, during the AIDS epidemic and when there was a lot of homophobia, um, especially in the sort of macho world of sports. Um, and he did cross dress, he did paint his nails, he did put lipstick on. And a lot of people eventually saw it as Dennis's shtick and the way to sort of make money and you know, maybe there was a small bit of that, the sort of marketing of Dennis Rodman, but, you know, hopefully it comes across in the film that Dennis felt a very true, I think, and strong connection to the sort of LGBT community then. Um, mm. And sure, maybe it was because, you know, they were treated like outcasts and because they accepted him and he had 
you know, again, we've talked about it, but his whole journey was for love and acceptance his entire life and this idea of belonging. And I think he felt like when he went to these crowbar and these sort of clubs in San Antonio and Chicago, I think he felt like he belonged there. And I think they loved him and they, they treated him like an equal. And I, I think he loved that feeling. Um, and I think, you know, he showed a lot of love for that community. And I think it's, it's overshadowed because of some of the cartoonish, I guess, yeah. sort of shows of that, you know, and I think he probably took it too far at a certain point because he was getting attention from it. But I really do think he had, you know, good intentions and a, a strong sort of, um, you know, support of that community, which is forgotten, I think, because yep. of the sort of cartoonish ways that he expressed it sometimes. No, you hit it on the head and the, I feel so differently about him after this documentary. Not that I didn't like him, but I found him as I found him more pitiful than I did just this guy that I wanted to help. And, you know, I mean, I, everybody that's got a broken wing in life wants to help another person with a broken wing. And, yeah. and Dennis, in some cases, that was his whole life, whether who, whoever he befriended, whoever, and, and it was admirable, but you also see some of the, the, the potholes in that too. I grew, he grew 11 inches after high school. I still don't know. Like, I want to ask my, the pediatrician across the street, is that possible? Like <laughs> five, eight to six, seven, it was just insane. I mean, imagine if like, you know, you're, you're, you're some guy, at, you know, like an AU camp and you go, what, what the guy that couldn't even dribble and was, we were going to try and make him a point guard. He's now six, eight. He's a, I mean, it's just unbelievable to me that he grew so much Two, you have some great footage of the of him playing with his NAIA team, Southeastern yeah. Oklahoma, which mm -hmm. I like he looks like he looks like Jimmy Chitwood. He's knocking down jump shots. <laughs> like I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, why didn't he why didn't they give him this kind of freedom? Like why why did he just become a bricklayer in the NBA? He had a nice right. little stroke. They should have worked no. on that more. Well, it's funny, it's you know, we and again a lot of this stuff gets cut out in the final doc, but you know, it's just college coach and all his college teammates I mean yeah he could score he, he had a good shot nice. he could shoot and um get a little I, up I and wanna, under move yeah and I don't want to botch this but I think in his last college game he had like 47 and 30 or something like he, he put up numbers and you know even even some of his NBA um you know even guys in the NBA kind of told us like if Dennis wanted to be an NBA player um uh, sorry, if Dennis wanted to be an NBA scorer, he, he could have been. He sort of just chose not to. And, and again, a part of the doc that got cut out, we had this sort of psychology of Dennis's sort of on-court game. And we kind of broke it down like a little bit of fear of failure. Tom Wilson, who was in the doc, who was the president of the Pistons when he played there, kind of told us Dennis was terrified to – like he would shoot a three, and if he missed it, it wasn't a big deal because people missed threes. But if he got a rebound, he wouldn't shoot a layup, and he'd pull it out because – if he missed the layup, he'd be embarrassed. So I think he was so sensitive that in a way that sort of carried over to his offensive game. Um, you know, other guys told us the same thing with free throws. Yeah, I think Phil Jackson had mentioned to me that, yeah, I think Dennis could have been a good free throw shooter, but he, he'd see him, he'd run up there, you would take like a quick dribble and shoot it and just hated the, the attention, hated all the eyes on him. So there was this sort of interesting psychology to Dennis's game where the dirty work – you can't really mess up the dirty work. And you saw in the Pistons, he would dive into the stands when he had no shot at getting a ball. He would, you know, take charge after charge after charge. Those things, you know, if you're called for a block, yeah, I guess that's failing if you're trying to take a charge. But there's a lot less 
um, sort of messing up when you're doing the dirty work. And I think mm-hmm. Dennis Rodman made a career out of that. And I think a lot of that was just psychological. I, I could go into Madonna and all the things that happened to him in San Antonio that changed his uh, life and, and made him sort of realize the possibilities beyond basketball, that he could be almost this counterculture figure, which he became at a time when, you know, the counterculture wasn't very big and that, you know, he would almost fit in better with these times where you could essentially the social conscience um, among athletes is now you know, experiencing a renaissance at the time, yep. you know, very much. This was this was Michael Jordan and commercials and this was Tiger Woods and the commercial pitchman. It wasn't to be political or otherwise. I could go into all that. I, what I really want to go into is what I feel is the meat of the documentary. And that's the family and the family that he left behind, the family that he couldn't be a father to, and all the things that, and the family that he found that, you know, wasn't his family of origin. I I wanted to hate him for being a shitty dad. I really did, but I can't because no one showed him otherwise. And, you know, I wanted to tell him how many people took advantage of him and pushed him to go farther and get more stupid and drunk, but it was his choice. And so mostly I just, I just want to see if he can live sober and happy because you realize what a, what a great fucking guy he is when he's his true self. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, it's, everyone's obviously responsible for their sort of behavior. And when you're a father, you're kind of responsible for how you're going to be a parent. And, you know, I think at 58 now, Dennis, and he says in the doc, he's like, I'm in my fifties. I should know how to be your parent. And I, I think he knows that it's sort of the alcoholism at this point, that's sort of getting in, in the way of that. And, you know, that's an everyday battle for him. And, uh, you know, I think you're right. If he, he sort of can overcome that, he can slowly be a better father. I mean, we interviewed his ex-wife, who's the mother of Trinity and DJ, who are two of his children, who, again, he admittedly hasn't been there for them. And mm. um, his daughter, Alexis, who he had when he was in Detroit, she says he wasn't there. And, you know, I think now he's he's trying. It's it's like you said, it, you're, yeah. you want him to be a father. And you, you want him to do better. Um, and you're angry about that, but you know, he's battling a disease and I think he, he truly wants to be a better dad. And I guess time will tell. It's, it's, yeah. If he, uh, uh, transparently, he do it. go ahead. I cut you off again. Oh no. I was just going to say, you know, at 58, you just hope, you know, he said in the doc, I, I, I want to in quote, you know, be a normal person now. So you yeah. know, whatever that means for Dennis, I'm not sure, but hopefully being a normal person means, you know, being with your kids and, and uh, trying to be a better father in a part of their lives. He, pro- he portrays Shirley Rodman, his father, as very cold and not very affectionate. And, um, and that, you know, that's part of the reason why he hasn't connected with her. But he was, he was very tearful at the Hall of Fame ceremony. And I, I forgot about that, his speech, which was so good at the end, because you could tell there was so much shame and guilt. And he's trying to sort of unburden himself in the way that Allen Iverson did just several years ago. But even, I don't know, even I've even felt Dennis was more genuine. People don't even, people forget Philander Rodman. I mean, what a name for a dad, Philander <laughs> Rodman. He fathers, what is it, 33 kids in the Philippines? Well, he fathered, you know, it's, there's various numbers out there. We felt safe saying 25. Uh, oh, is it 25? Uh, yeah, in the Philippines. So, you know, he's, Dennis is technically one of, you know, 28 because he has two sisters. Um, wow. Surely. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, to me, one of the saddest moments, and I wish we could have done a little bit more on it, but was, you know, Dennis has no contact with 
philander his father his Mm -hmm. entire life doesn't have a dad has to try to find these figures you know other places so he finds james rich in oklahoma and he finds chuck daly and he finds phil jackson and jerry buss never has a real father and then he gets massively famous in chicago and then his dad shows up at a bulls game with like a extra you know extra sort of celebrity tabloid news camera um and he shows up at a game to try to sort of benefit off dennis and that's after having you know 25 other kids that he apparently lived with in the philippines so I don't know. I've never been through that. I don't know what psychological sort of effect that has on someone. Um, but when you're at the, the height of fame and you're Michael Jordan's sidekick and, and you're one of the most recognizable people in the world, I think that's a, that's a hard bowl to be mixed up in. So I, I, yeah. And I thought you, you touched on it. You could have gone into it more, but it was, I thought you really, tra- I mean, having written about guys that, that either their parents abandoned them or came back later in life and and not necessarily for money all the time, but just wanted a connection. I'm of the opinion that the guy who was abandoned, whether it be Colin Kaepernick or whoever, like they have to open that door themselves. The media can't do it for them. And I feel like the media tried to a little bit here. And and this is what I want to get to um, before we end. And once again, my guest is Todd Kapstashi, who did a, a tremendous documentary, brilliant in many ways. Look, you don't have to take it from me. I'm not exactly the next Siskel and Ebert, but this was powerful and it, it made me feel for him. And and that's all you can ask for. If you really like anybody that said ah, Rodman, Rodman, low life, like, anybody that could have the most jaded, unsentimental feelings about Dennis Rodman can't watch this and not feel something or, you know, or they need a heart transplant because there was a part where his, his mother tells him like, well, he he basically says, my father, my mother never talked about my dad. And she's like, well, you never want to tell your child that your father don't want him. And, and that's essentially what, that's essentially what Philander did. In fact, that he tried to come back into his life. What about the, the media, the media's role in, because I've often thought, um, I got really close to Gilbert Arenas when he was in Washington and he was this breath of fresh air. And he was sort of, I guess, Dennis light for many years where he was, he was doing all these crazy things and he got a MySpace page before anybody. And he got on all these social media networks and he became that one rare athlete in a world of guys, you know, uh, rolling up their tinted windows as they drive out. He was the guy who rolled the windows down and let everybody in. And I really, I really identified with Gilbert on several levels, personally and otherwise. I also felt like at the end of his career in Washington, before he got he got into it with the guns in the locker room, and his and his career went downhill after that. I felt like I enabled him a little bit um, because I, you know, because he was winning at the time all this crazy stuff was going on, and I thought, oh, this is who he is. And I wonder if, like, you look back at all the all the clips and the books and everything. And you think to yourself, you know, did, did the media almost egg this guy on? Did they enable him at all to, to go overboard with whatever it was, the gold schlager, um, his antics? I mean, yes, <laughs> I think a hundred percent. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, and I don't, I'm a, I'm a part of the, the media, so I, I'm not sort of being critical of, of that happening, but, I do think, especially considering Dennis's personality, where he's looking, I mean, again, like the biggest thing I, I want people to take away from the doc is that Dennis Rodman 
was born and didn't get something, which is what he thought was the love that he wanted and the belonging and sought it, you know, throughout his life, you know, by any means necessary. And I think that, you know, the media giving him attention for doing certain things and and kind of showing this, not that it's false love, but, you know, just being famous and getting attention in the media, being told that something's fun or funny or you should keep doing this. And, you know, I do think Dennis fell victim to that a little bit, you know, once he created this sort of Dennis Rodman persona that the, the media wanted more of it. And he says in the doc, I think at one point, he's like, I brought this on myself. But I don't, you know, I, and that's, that was a sort of very honest thing for him to say that, you know, he liked the fame and he, he, he noticed like, okay, if I do this, like I get more famous or I get more attention. And so I'm going to keep doing this thing. And sure, he brought it on himself, but I do think it was also, you know, like you're saying, like Gilbert Arenas was like an interesting person and you sort of noticed that and wanted more of it. And uh, he kind of gave you what you wanted and you probably kind of kept feeding into that. And I think that's, to Dennis on a, a, a much bigger scale was happening mm-hmm. every single day in San Antonio and, and with the Bulls to the point where he probably just lost track of like everything he was doing and the craziness and just kept doing it to sort of become more famous and get more attention. And, um, you know, I, I do think sort of the media played a big yeah. part in that sort of Dennis Rodman persona that kind of exploded in the, in the, yeah. Like, I remember talking to Tim Kuhn who, I mean, small world, Tim Q and Michael Silver and I all worked at the Sacramento Union in like the late 80s oh, wow. before it folded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know who the Giants beat writer was, the San Francisco Giants beat writer? A, a guy by the name of Mike Fleiss. Um, yeah. Yes. He went on to create The Bachelor. And I, I saw him <laughs> in a Lakers. I saw him in a Lakers game several years ago and he was in some leather jacket and he looked like, you know, and, and, he, and he just looked filthy rich. And I said to him, I said, how does it feel to have ruined American culture? And um, and Fleiss looked at me and he just put his fingers together like I'm rich. But yeah. but any, but at any rate, uh, Tim Kuhn, they're different guys, as you know, Silver, Tim Kuhn, all these guys you spoke to. Kuhn told me a story. He, only, he always was a more um, stand back, uh, detached journalist. And he's he's one of these guys that sort of stands back and he he. He, he, I remember him distinctly telling me a story after Bad As I Want to Be, where he was coming to Sacramento to see his daughter at the time. And he did, it was her birthday and he didn't even know he, he had to he had to ask Tim where he could get her birthday present at. Like Tim had to help him go get a birthday. present. No. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that that bite and you know, not to get in the weeds too much on the production process, but that story he told us that, too. And it was in the dock for a while. And again, sort of time. But the sort of longer version of that is. Oh, wow. Is, he eventually went to the mall, I think, with Dennis. And Dennis was like, oh, I don't know what to get her. And I think Tim was like, oh, you know, you should – I don't know. What is she like? She's six. Like, you should get her, you know, a doll or, like, a, a toy pony or something. And Dennis was like, oh, I don't think so. And then he goes to a jewelry <laughs> store and gets her, like – I don't even know if her ears were pierced. But he, he ended up getting her sort of, like, really expensive jewelry. And right. I guess she opened it at the birthday party. You know, a six-year-old doesn't need, like, a $1,000 necklace. So I think when she opened it – didn't like it and I guess Dennis was just absolutely crushed so it's that I think that's such a great embodiment of some of the problems that Dennis does have because he means well he wanted to do something great for his daughter you know obviously well-intentioned but sort of d- didn't know her enough wasn't present enough in her life to know that she wouldn't want an act right. but then on top of it is crushed by the act that she didn't like it so there's oh a, no there's a, it's a, it's a, yeah you're right it's a metaphor into who he is like you look at 
you know, North Korea. There's this obliviousness. He has no idea that this is, if he does know, it's sort of like, ah, okay, they say on CNN he committed human rights violation. I didn't see him kill anybody while I was there. And, 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 and you know, he has this obliviousness where he just, he doesn't know. Dwight Manley told me that he stopped being his agent. Did, he, did Dwight Manley tell you why he stopped being his agent? No, I don't think he did. Well, okay, he, so Dwight, Dwight told us that it, it was a Carmen Electra issue. I think like when him and Carmen had all these troubles, it was just too much. You 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 hit it on the head. But yeah. he he said they were on a private plane, and at one point he and Carmen Electra basically got busy in the aisle in front of everybody, and he was he said at that point you know it was just too much. Yeah. And and I thought you know. It's another moment where Dennis says, ah, I'm, I'm just pushing the envelope. And he would just push the envelope until you know, he had no idea of how far outside the lines he was he was going sometimes. Well, it's interesting, the thing with North Korea, too. And we, we were just kind of hoping and we didn't draw this connection directly, but just hoping the audience sort of would. But, you know, even his relationship with Kim Jong-un, it's like, of course you're flabbergasted by this guy, by Dennis and the media saying, Oh, he's my friend. You know, he's my friend. He's my friend for life. He's nice to me. And like, sure, that's true. And fine. But like, you know, he's not so nice to other people, Dennis, but I think that just shows that, you know, it's the same reason why he befriended a 12 or 13 year old in Oklahoma. He doesn't care who they are. If they love him and show him, you know, that they care about him and that, you know, a sense of sort of, again, this sort of belonging and acceptance, which, you know, Kim over there must have shown him that. And so he doesn't, he didn't care. And he didn't, yeah, yeah that's why he didn't care that Brian Rich was 13 and the whole thing was weird. I think he just, he likes people who he has a direct connection with. And I think that's part, you know, a small sliver of the situation in North Korea. Yeah. Uh, he, well, I like, and he's, he's non judgmental, irrespective of who you are, where you came from. He's non judgmental. I, another rich part of the documentary, which I thought was, in its own way, brilliant was when you got um, Rich's mother. Was it Pat? Yeah, Pat. Yeah, Pat to basically say that she says the N word on the air, you know, yeah. fully spelled out. And it was almost arresting. Like, really? You're going to say it now? And but it but it brought home what it must have felt like when Dennis heard that. And Dennis, in his own words, won't use the N word on the air. He's like basically right. in the documentary, he calls it the N word. And it's there's that, that other obliviousness where you got Todd Boyd uh, the, uh, from USC, which I thought he really nailed on the head. He's he's a, he's a, he's even oblivious to the oppression that some of his own people have suffered because he thought that that was, you know, OK. Yeah, I left because of it, but it wasn't the biggest deal in the yep. world. And it said so like on so many levels, like one, Dennis Rodman's immune to some of the really ugly racism because he doesn't realize it's that deep. And two, he he took every amount of abuse anywhere he went and played on the road. He probably loved it when he became the villain. It probably right. was almost a, you know, like, yeah, I've now, I've, I've now taken up the mantle of the outcast. You want some of me? Okay. I'm going to be as bad and ugly as you want. And, 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 and I'm going to like it. And it's sort of like, it, I don't know. I'm, anyway, I could talk to you for five hours about the guy. So he's so, and I know you got 20 other things to do, but he's, he's so fascinating. Uh, yeah. I just, and, and the part about Alexis, his daughter, like crying at the end, she's got her own son. And she, it, this part got me too, when she says, my son brings out a hope that maybe my dad can try again. And I was just like, wow. 
every daughter, every kid wants to feel that. Yeah, exactly. And the sad thing is, you know, and I, I hope, I hope to God that Dennis, you know, will be, you know, a part in that his grand grandson's life, but you know, who knows at this point. And I don't know if that's wishful thinking on Alexis's part, but you know, another thing that's, that struck me (laughs) just interviewing Mm -hmm. his ex-wife and knowing we didn't actually interview Trinity and DJ, um, but I got to know them when I was over at the house and, and talking to them. And Alexa, I'm sorry, uh, Trinity is an amazing soccer player. I think she's on the, like, the Youth USA team. Um, DJ, I think, just signed a uh, like a letter of intent to play at Washington State, I think. And then Alexis, obviously, you know, she comes across as super articulate and thoughtful. And, like, he ra- it, it, these kids <laughs> are his his children, I know he didn't have a hand in raising them, but it sort of just struck me of how great the kids are. Um, oh. Not that they shouldn't be, but it's like, you know, you, you what you think about Dennis Rodman being this caricature and crazy and, you know, an alcoholic, and then he's got these kids who are wonderful sort of <laughs> citizens. Um, oh. really interesting. They're all put together and they're, yeah, that's great that they're doing so well. And, uh, but it's still, it just kills me that he wanted his mom's love so bad in ways that she never gave it to him. And now his kids want that from him. And I, that, that part of me is just, you know, the, the, the masochistic part of him, the, the part that just doesn't see the pain he causes himself. All right. I'm going to leave you with this one. Cause I, I think you ask a lot of good questions in the, in the beginning of the film. And I, you know, he talks about at the end, you know, I drank my ass off, you know, do I regret it? No, I drank because I was bored. Um, there's a there's a question you ask at the end of the film, and I'm sitting here going through my notes right now. Uh, here, it, start of it, you say, individuality leads to fame and familiar tropes about its cost. What do you think the cost of Dennis Rodman's fame was? I I think it was happiness. I think it was personal happiness, and mm. you know, I, I unfortunately I think. He says it, you know, again, not to spoil the end of the doc, but I think there is this moment for him where he sort of asked, you know, not a was it all worth it sort of thing, but it's it's more yeah. like, you know, where do you stand at 58 years old looking back at your career and your life and where you've been? And this is a guy who's traveled the world and, you know, dated some of the most famous women on the planet and the five-time champion. And it's it's sort of like, am I happy or am I not happy? And, you know, the answer isn't, you know, the one that he wants it to be. Mm. And I think that was, that's probably the, the kind of the cost of fame. And last one, you said, whatever was sought along the way, was it found? Do you think you ever found, and, and I think it goes back to the happiness thing. I, I think he's still searching. I think he is. I mean, I think he's found it at times and it kind of goes back to Detroit. I think he, he, he found it there and he was so happy there. And I think that's why you saw sort of the parking lot and the palace and what happened there because he lost it. So I think there have been sort of fleeting points in his life where he's found, you know, happiness and this sense of belonging and accomplishment. And, you know, he's been happy and, you know, and not to also sort of overlook the fun that he had. I mean, his Chicago days, Unfortunately, they led to alcoholism, but he, you know, the, the the sort of routine he described to me and the partying he did in Chicago, I mean, it was fun for him. And I think he enjoyed that. And I think he enjoyed parts of the fame and he enjoyed a lot of the people he was hanging out with and he enjoyed the partying and drinking and being, mm. you know, on one of the greatest teams of all time. And so I do think there were sort of 
fleeting moments of joy and fun in Dennis's life, but I think he's still sort of trying to find and discover kind of what makes him happy and kind of what he's been looking for for, for these 58 years. Rodman, better for worse, comes out Tuesday, ESPN Films. Uh, my guest, uh, Todd Kapistashi, thank you so much uh, for the time and, and the thoughts on Dennis because you really – uh, there was some care put into this that people need to see. This wasn't just a moneymaker. This wasn't just um, something that you did. You could tell you were convicted about wanting to portray him as accurately as possible. And, you know, that's all anybody can do as a storyteller. I know from my own uh, work. Um, thank you for being with us, man. And uh, I'm going to, you know, because you know Bruce Bernstein, I'm going to send you some of my worst documentary ideas and you can reject them. <laughs> but now that we know each other, I can at least send them to you. Yeah, I'll send him along. And you know, just a note on Bruce. Bruce is the best boss I've ever had. So, oh that man, that's you know, I'm starting to feel the same way. Uh, thank, thank <laughs> you so much, yeah, and uh, and talk to you soon. And you know what? I I'm trying to get to Tokyo because I'm writing a book on Billy Mills, the 1964 uh, 10,000 meter gold medalist there, and um, he's uh, he's about 80 something, and I think he wants to promote it over there. If I do, I'm gonna tell Tara that we talked. Well, I might be there, so we can have a beer. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Take care, Todd. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks to Todd Capistashi for sharing his great stories about the new Rodman 30 for 30 film, For Better or Worse. Talking about his career, his life, and shoot, really being a better amateur psychologist about Dennis Rodman than I've ever been. Thanks also to Bruce Bernstein, producer of this show and a person who believed in Todd from the very first moments they worked together. Well, you heard, called him the best boss ever. Thanks to Ben Wolfen for his editing skills and support. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. I'm here each Monday with the Mike Wise Show and my guests are amazing. Noah and Adam are here with Catch and Shoot each Wednesday. Their most recent guest is Mo Spates. Mo Betta, Mo Betta Hoops, who won a chip with Golden State in 2015. Monica McNutt has buckets, boards, and blocks each Thursday. She just had Jean Quell Jones of the Connecticut Sun, an MVP candidate in the WNBA, along with, of course, our own Washington Mystics, Elena Deladon. And each Friday, we have the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Please rate all of them, download, subscribe, and enjoy. Later. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.